0: I got- Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. You have tuned into part two of a two-part pre-birth episode. My guest today is Christina Perry, and we're going to jump right in from New Year's of 2020 when Christina had a beautiful husband, a child, and was nine weeks pregnant at Disneyland and took an incredible picture of what was supposed to be amazing new year for none of us. Did it turn out like that? And especially for you, what happens next?
1: Okay. So, you know, I really enjoyed our trip. I have to say we were there for a whole week. We were in Florida and 2020 came. And as you know, the whole world thought it was going to be the best year ever. Everyone had like really interesting, beautiful dreams about it. And I was pregnant. So I just thought this was going to be amazing. And we flew back to New Jersey. I want to say it was January 5th. And I went in for my, what would have been my 10 week checkup, but I went in at week 11. So I must have been like a a smidge late for the appointment and there was no heartbeat. So I experienced my very first miscarriage and the truth is this, there was a heartbeat at our eight week checkup. So I'm not sure at this point in time in my life, what has happened. It was also so fast how I went from the doctor's office where they told us that the baby had no heartbeat. They sent us right to the hospital for a DNC that happened really fast. The OB said, do you want to do uh, testing on the embryo? I think it had stopped at 10 weeks so they considered the little life a embryo and they asked if i wanted to do testing and i was like frazzled and i remember being in shock and just saying like no you know because here's the thing there's something really beautiful about the advancement of how we talk about miscarriage now in 2022 but i've read so much about it now The information is there now. The support groups are there now. But what I also know is that it's one in four. And it's so common, is, you know, like voices echoing in my head. You're not alone. You're not alone. This is really common. This is really common. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. So I didn't even think twice to do any testing. So I said no. And I don't know if I regret that or not. I just wanted to point that out that it was offered to me. And I said no, it's fine because I just thought this was just random. Like The randomness of it was the thing that carried me through. I'm not religious anymore. I don't practice a certain faith. I have more of just sort of like a universal love kind of faith and like a higher power in my sobriety. So I I didn't lean on any faith to think it happens for a reason or not. That actually didn't make me feel better. So I just kind of went with Genetic abnormality, completely random, happens to one in four women, we're going to move forward. Like I was very sort of medical and scientific about it, if I'm being honest. That was the only thing that made me feel better. People made me necklaces with a Capricorn color, because this was January 10th of 2020. You know, that that would have been their Zodiac sign. I kind of rejected all of that and was just like, no, it's random. It wasn't my fault. You know, it happens. I'm now part of a club right? It's a humongous club. No one wants to be part of it, right? But I did not feel alone. And I will say this is where the social media meets my story in the most beautiful way. So social media is weird. The internet is weird. People, strangers knowing everything about your life is totally weird. And then when you go through something like what I went through, I just want to note that I decided to share about it right away we had a picture with Mickey Mouse holding a little onesie that said baby and Carmela being like this and Mickey Mouse being like this. And we had like an announcement photo that I was six days away from posting. And so I said that in my post, I said I lost the baby at 11 weeks and we were a week away from sharing it with the world. And I thought I absolutely should share this. Right. This was like my first time. Not sharing about something vulnerable because I've been doing that my whole career, but this was my first like thing to really qualify me into this world of infertility. This was the first thing because before that, and everything had been just normal with Carmela. So now all of a sudden I post this and I've never received more comments, love, you know, direct messages, people reached out. It was like bigger than my career. I'm not even going to lie. I didn't know that this community was bigger than like the community of people that listen to my music, or maybe they're the same thing. Maybe we're all just growing up together. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the women and the people who like my music truthfully might be in their thirties, all making babies. I don't know. There was something, it mm-hmm. felt like so authentic, you know, it didn't feel like people out of the woodwork. It felt like my family reaching out people that had been, you know, following my story or whatever. So anywho, that happens, we go, home and Carmela is about to turn two. So she truthfully did not understand the concept that there was a baby in my belly, even though Carmela is pretty brilliant. We cried and held her in our little foyer. I remember it happening. Our nanny Meredith was there. Who's a huge part of the story. And our parents came, my mom and dad, Paul's mom and dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, everyone came to just like cook and hang out with us, you know, cause I was recovering now from whatever the DNC was. I, you know, they knock you out. I literally knew nothing. What had just happened to my body. I was flushed. I had a fever for three days, but we were loved and supported through the whole thing. Like the most warm love and messages and flowers, you know, we had like a zillion flowers in the house and it was really intense. It was like you know, for how common it is, like it it really did feel like a loss. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like this was my first one. And sure, I had no idea what was coming later in my life, but I allowed it to be incredibly painful. I went to therapy and three weeks later, everyone said, go back to work. So I had a trip to Nashville planned and everyone said, go, because writing is so healing anyway. And that's all I do is, you know, tell the truth and whatever. And so I figured I would write a song about it and get a tattoo which i did <laughs> so what's interesting is this tattoo is a rose so yeah. i knew that we wanted to name that baby rosie to so oh. you know. so i got this rose tattoo and i wrote a song called roses in the rain which is maybe the, my favorite song i've ever written and it's on my lullaby album and it's on my new album so I, there's two versions of it one where chris martin of a small band called Coldplay is singing with me oh wow <laughs> lullaby record and That's a whole other story for another day. And then one where Carmela is singing in the bridge and like the trumpet. It's very pretty in the album version. So there are two versions of that song that I'm really proud of. And the truth is, because everyone thinks I wrote that for Rosie, who then later comes into the story at the end of 2020. But this song was actually written about my experience with miscarriage and the little baby that we lost in January of 2020, who we didn't get to know. And the day everybody went back to work. I remember it was a Monday and I thought, wow, this is so strange. Like I just have to move on with my life. And like, you know, I felt blown open. And so I remember sitting with these two brilliant songwriters in Nashville named Ian Fitchick and Daniel Toshin. And it was the last day. Cause I was like, I told them on the first day I wanted to write about it, but I wasn't ready. And then on the last day of our week trip, we wrote, This song, and I think it says it all about grief and loss without saying it too on the nose. You know, it's more poetic.
0: Yeah. You know, we've been through miscarriage ourselves several times, and also I've been on that journey with so many people, and it just, especially when you were ready to have the baby, you were excited for the pregnancy, even though it's common, even though it was in the first trimester when it's common, it was towards the end of the first trimester, which I think is even harder, but it's always hard. It's always a loss, and I'm just glad you got a, a chance to process that with a kind of a wall of warmth and love around you and that uh, you made a song once again that will help other people so um Thank let's you. go into break with a little bit of that and we'll be right back
1: maybe in a little while i'll put some coffee on can't stop wondering where the spirits go when they are gone Tomorrow But it felt like Today You and I Were walking You and I
0: Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com. It's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby, not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Christina Perry. I feel like I've been talking to you for like a thousand years. <laughs> lady okay. i had to i had to um <laughs> and now that's going to be in my head for like a thousand oh, years okay maybe
1: that's how long we've actually been friends we don't even know
0: it could be right? we, it feels like it i, I, I know, will tell I you agree. that much it feels like it uh january 2020 started badly for you with a very tough experience and then probably a couple months after that i was uh, in the icu trying to stay alive and then i recovered thankfully And then your year continued.
1: Yeah. After Nashville, I come home. We immediately go into the pandemic. I think it was like right at the end of February. But I want to say that while I was in Nashville, this is now a month after the miscarriage, I grew a very large cyst on my ovary. And I was in excruciating pain in Nashville. I actually flew home early because they weren't sure if they needed to operate because it was six centimeters And apparently it was the cyst that grows when you get pregnant. I forget the name of it. It has a Latin name and it grows with every pregnancy. But when you lose the pregnancy, it's supposed to then shrink. And mine didn't, it did the opposite and it grew very big and it hurt. And I flew home and I had to get monitored for this. Now I'm only bringing this up because this was like one of the, I don't know, I think red flags that I really missed, but here I am now. In 2020, and it starts out with a miscarriage, thyroid medication, a cyst on my ovary. They put me on birth control just to get it down. So I didn't need surgery. It went down. I went off the birth control and I immediately get pregnant. I think it's important to note that sort of chain of events. And then May, this is now the lockdown. I mean, a lot of people got pregnant in the lockdown. And I thought to myself, truthfully, Getting pregnant is so actually difficult. As you get older, you realize that that if I'm pregnant, I must be okay. like if my if my body got pregnant, I must be okay. Like the miscarriage must have been a random thing. Flug. the yeah, the cyst is resolved itself. The thyroid thing freaked me out, and I had then put on about ten pounds with the pregnancy that would not come off. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot, but for me, I just like have always been, you know, a a similar weight. And if I wanted to lose weight very quickly for a photo shoot or a video shoot or whatever, I could just like do a juice cleanse. And I get that might've been in my twenties and now I'm in my thirties. People are telling me like, oh, you're older, but I had a weird feeling about it. I just want to say there was something about the fact I couldn't lose an ounce I mean, literally the 10 pounds I put on with that pregnancy, it didn't move from not eating carbs and, you know, working out every day, nothing like nothing moved it. So again, I just want to point out, I think red flag that I missed, but I get pregnant. So I'm like, well, it doesn't matter now I'm going to gain a ton of weight. So just keep it moving. So May, June, July, August, September, October. Okay. Completely normal pregnancy. I'm not going to lie. Every appointment, now it was the pandemic and it was, you know, emotionally hard and the world was going through trauma, but I went to every doctor's appointment. This is my same doctor, by the way, who delivered Carmela, who did the DNC, who now is walking me through this pregnancy. This is now my third pregnancy and everything's normal, completely normal. Every doctor's appointment, my blood work, I'm taking the thyroid medication. So that my thyroid's normal. Everything is just normal and so normal that I'm working. I flew in my producer. She came to stay in our house in Montclair. And I will say at this point, I have now not left the house in Montclair for 168 days Oh wow! because of the lockdown. Yeah. But we turn our house into like a preschool with like a slide and a paint wall. And like Carmela is thriving. I feel like (laughs) any two, you know, now, yeah, she was two years old. Any two year old was thrilled that their parents were home, you know? So, Paul and I are trying to make it through our marriage. You know, it's a different story. We're just a little bit together too much, but we mm-hmm. tried to make it fun, you know? And honestly, I feel very grateful we were healthy. We didn't get COVID at that time. So I know that experience was so different for so many people who lost so many people they love. So, But we stayed in our little bubble because I was pregnant. We didn't go anywhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was maybe a terrible idea. So I flew my producer to New Jersey. I flew my engineer. Paul's sister came to stay with us. We made a whole album. It was phenomenal. We had the best time. This is October of 2020. We're in a studio in Montclair, New Jersey, four girls making an album. It ended up being exactly what my third album is, which I love very much. So I don't want to take away from the joy of that. But I have to say I was pregnant. I was seven months pregnant and I had Carmella there at the studio and all these incredible women. And it really was a lovely reprieve from a really hard year. Right. We thought January of 2020 was the hardest thing we were going to go through that year. Then the pandemic happened. We thought that was the hardest thing we'd go through that year. And we looked at making this album as like a beautiful experience. And I go to my doctor's appointment for my 30 week checkup. Now, at this point, I have a high risk doctor. And my OBGYN, because I'm considered high risk from having not just the miscarriage, actually, but the thyroid medication. It qualified me for extra scans, which I thought, well, that's cool. Who doesn't love an extra, you know, peace of mind? So I would go to this like special doctor once a month for fetal monitoring, you know, the anatomy scan, all that stuff. But you just get a little bit extra is what happens when you're, you know, older and whatever. So I go in for my normal scan. We just finished the album. This is now November 10th of 2020. And I'm 30 weeks pregnant. And they find that the baby has atresia of the gut. There's a blockage, and they send me immediately to the hospital. So this was trauma number one in the the course of this week because Carmela wasn't alerted to why we didn't come home. We were at the hospital for three days. She was so traumatized from that. I remember almost worse what happens later because like we are so communicative with her and then all of a sudden we just weren't there
0: and disappear so that was really
1: jarring for her but we were really shocked we didn't know what was happening and they told me i might spend the next six weeks in the hospital waiting for baby Mm. or she might come which might be safer or i might go home it was like very unclear And that's so unhelpful, you know, but at the time it was just, no one knew what was going to happen next. So I'm in the hospital. Now I'm seen by the specialist, like the head of Lenox Hill hospital. I'm seen by two other fetal specialists. One guy from Westchester came down like a fetal MRI specialist. We meet with the NICU. We meet with a surgeon. She said, I've done a thousand of these surgeries. Your baby's going to be fine. We then researched everything you could possibly research about atresia. There are five types of atresia. I knew about all five, what the outcomes would be, what would happen if she had one, two, three, four, or five, how long we'd be in the NICU. Roughly, we had ideas. I shared about it online. Thousands of moms reached out to me. My kid had this. My kid had this. Like, We were shocked, but we were like, okay, just constantly being given hope. It was not doom and gloom. It was like, hey, this is a complication. We're going to get through it. And in my mind, I was like, um, okay, but like, why is there an extra hole in her heart? And why is there fluid under her scalp? Like there were other things also, like I remember very clearly, but everyone was like, you know, we're just going to get through this and we're going to weigh the risk. And you're going to kind of come for fetal monitoring every two days. And this is November 10th. She lived for 14 more days. Well, she died on November 23rd at night in utero. I went for fetal monitoring that morning. We broke every rule they have, every protocol they have, because apparently you're supposed to be good for about 24 hours unless something happens, or 36 hours. So her fetal monitoring was absolutely fine on that Monday morning.
0: Just to clarify that point, when you see that everything looks good on that non-stress test, You know, it's supposed to be some sort of near guarantee that everything is going to be okay. And then you do it again a couple of days later to buy yourself two more days.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we were driving in from New Jersey to Manhattan every two days and doing this. And we weren't told that her dying was an option. I'm I'm not going to lie. It was like we were told, you know, that we would take her out at any moment if there was a hiccup. We were told she looks great. You look great. Just hang tight. Everybody's okay. You know what I mean? Like, we were really told some hopeful things. And the medicine science was there. It was like her fluid was great. Her heart rate was great. Her movement was great. And we went home. This was now between week 33 and 34 for me. We went home, and this appointment was 11 a.m. And I noticed she had stopped moving around 11 p.m. So I'm not sure at what point she passed away, but I knew it. And my OB knew it in my voice. I said, Oh, you know, I'm worried. I, she's not moving. I've tried apple juice and you know, every, every single pregnant mother's fear, every single one, we all have the same fear at that point, you know? So we get in the car, we drive to Lennox Hill. I didn't expect to see my OB. So that made me nervous because she just showed up. So they put me on the machine and it was like, just honestly, like a really, sorry, this is going to make me emotional. Um, it was like a bad movie, where I'm like looking at the ceiling because I can't look at the nurse. Like I remember her face. She couldn't look at me. My OB had like left the room for a minute. Paul was parking the car and it's just me and the nurse. And she's like looking for a heartbeat and there just wasn't one there. I'll never forget that. You know, it was like a time-lapse video then where the OB comes in, Paul comes in, everyone's crying and or upset or I'm so shot. Like they can't believe it. I'm just staring at the ceiling. Like I just was like disassociated, I think is the word. Like I just couldn't handle that. Like, and I kind of come back into my body is what I know, you know, in psychology because I just really left basically because it was so hard. And I'd later dealt with that in EMDR, by the way, that exact moment. And I come back in my body and I just say, you know, how is she going to come out? And like, I remember my OB looking at me like, not like it was an odd question in that moment, nothing is odd, you know, but I was just like such a, what are we going to do about this now? I was so practical. Yeah. Practical. And Paul's crying and Dr. Manos is crying. Cause she's been working with us now for four years. Like there was no, like no one saw it coming, but we did, but we didn't, it was very sad, you know, and I will say the next three days at Lennox Hill were beautiful for how sad they were. The nurses are unbelievable there. The people are unbelievable there. I'll never forget the care that we had it was like,
2: and I don't think it's because of who I am. I think, I think that that wonderful for anybody who goes through, you know, they put like a picture on your door so that everyone knows when they come in, sorry. And um, we got through it,
1: you know, and there's a million things I can say about that experience and I was very present for it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a human. I mean, they gave me like Ativan. I, and I just, because this was the only time we laughed for three days, I'll tell you the, you know, at this point I'm sober, like nine years and Paul and I are in the hospital and this is the worst experience we've ever had in our whole lives. And um, they give me an Ativan, they give me an epidural, they give me all these drugs because they don't want me to feel anything. And like, apparently i turned to paul just was like this narcotic or whatever they gave me was so good i was like do you want one <laughs> <laughs> he just starts laughing all the nurses start laughing the doctors laughing like it was one of those moments where like you know and paul's like no christina this is not a nightclub like <laughs> you know i don't think i can have one you know <laughs> And everyone was just laughing. And I'll just like I remember that so vividly because it was so sad. It was like just the saddest thing of all time. And uh we, you know, chose to meet her. I also want to say people have a choice in that scenario to just go under, to have a C-section. I mean, Dr. Manos said she'd do anything. And I wanted so badly to not go through that, not give birth. And I'm so glad I did. And I just want to say that because obviously I wish no one would ever have this experience ever, but if they do, I'm so glad I chose to give birth, hold her, meet her and say goodbye. Because the other version of that would have been just to, you know, I don't think now, you know, I would have been glad about that choice because there was something about meeting her, holding her and having that, that like was important, I think for us and me and Paul are glad that we did that. And we have her little box. They give you a box with the blanket that they put them in and they have her little footprints and, you know, it's like, you know, it's a thing. And um, I'm proud of myself for getting through that with Paul and we were there for two days and I'm not going to lie. The one thing, I thought about constantly was what we were going to tell Carmela
2: well.
1: because oh, this is just so hard to do pregnant. Normally I'm like telling this story and I'm like very composed, but I'm so pregnant. I just like, anyway, it's, it's just real. Um telling Carmela was all we thought about because we had the nursery. She was like, you know, at this point she's almost three, but she's like three going on 10. Mm. She very much was aware at this point. And we're, you know, in the hospital. And I promised her the next time we'd go to the hospital and not come home, we would bring home the baby because we had had that experience, you know, 10 days before that. And she was like, scared to let us go to the doctor because she's like, are you coming home this time? Like, you know, she had had a little trauma. So anyways, I'll tell you this. I reached out to that community like never before. I follow like six toddler specialists, Dr. Becky Kennedy, who's like, the biggest rock star of all toddlers. Big Little Feelings is another one. They're very popular and two beautiful women run that and carried us through that. And also Janet Lansbury, who wrote No Bad Kids, who's like literally the rock star of, of just parenting in general, in my opinion. And I reached out to her because she kind of said, if you ever need anything, and this was like the time to you know reach out to her. And Paul and I asked for a script. We were like, what do we do? What do we say? This child, Carmela's is so smart. You know, how do we do this? And uh, we practiced for a whole day what we would say, how we would say it. And we had at this point, our families had shown up in our house. My mom says that her and Paul's mom were too devastated to get Carmela from her nap. So
2: the reason why I love Meredith so much is because she was like, she was so tough and and strong for all of us. Like she, she was amazing. And, and so she was really helpful with like being, like she said, she would go home from work each night and just sob in her mom's arms, but she was so strong for us. And so we told Meredith, you know, we're coming home. Meredith put her in her room and our parents just waited downstairs. And so I said, we need to go straight to Carmela's room. We need to get this over with. And then we'll see you, because if we see you, we're going to just lose it, you know. So we had this whole plan. It was so orchestrated. And I cared so, so much about Carmela. And um, we walk
1: in. Carmela's in her room. She's playing. And it's joyful. She's happy to see us. We're hugging, you know, whatever. I don't know how Paul and I kept it together, but we did. And we said, Carmela, we have to tell you something. And uh, she... Like you know, she's only two and three quarters, and so she's like playing. Like, okay, like what is it? And we said exactly what the doctor said to, and the toddler specialist and the social workers and everyone we asked said tell the truth. And we were like, oh my god, how do you tell the truth to a two year old? So we said exactly what they told us to say, which was, Carmela, you are healthy and your body works and you're safe. Mommy and daddy. Our bodies work, we're healthy, and we are safe and Your baby sister was born, and her body didn't work, and she died and that's all we said, and I remember I said it so calm and so collected and not on emotional, but just like really, really soft and gentle, and not crying. She looks up and she like processes it for a second, and we're not breathing at this point, you know, and uh i mean literally this is what she said her little brain just goes don't worry mom and dad you guys don't have another baby and their body won't work
2: and we just lost it i'm not gonna lie we just held her and we cried and she cried and we said thank you here we are thanking our child who just comforted us I said, "In Carmel, you're gonna see us all cry this week. We're all gonna cry. Mommy's gonna cry. Dad's gonna cry. Mom, Mom's gonna cry, and Pop up, Grandma, Grandpa. We're all very sad, and we're just gonna get through it together." And she said, "Okay." And she just like held us. And I still like, especially because I'm pregnant right now. Oh my God, it's crazy. And just went a full circle, but
1: that is what happened. <laughs> that is the story of November 24th, 2020, you know, so we named her Rosie, by the way, she was a girl. We walked through that hand in hand together with me and Paul and Carmela and our
2: families and the whole world. I don't think I've ever seen anyone more sad for us. Literally, like I have a very vivid memory
1: because after we got back from the hospital, like I didn't take any medication. I was fully sober. I like, read all the messages. And we had like a florist. Our house was just, at one point, I put all the flowers in one room because I just was like, this is just too much. Like I can't handle the smell. And the the whole experience was, it was just surreal. It was like, you know, I was pregnant for eight months and then I just wasn't, just wasn't pregnant. I just come home and, and then I go into the fourth trimester. My milk comes in. We have this beautiful soul that we're taking care of and so she carried us through. I'm not going to lie, those next months like or weeks before we we ended up moving to LA on January 1st. So from November 24th, we got through Christmas somehow. I don't even remember. But everyone we've ever known, I mean I'm talking my kindergarten teacher, like literally everyone I've ever known, my whole entire life reached out to us, sent us food, sent us flowers like It's so touching. Like I'm crying because I'm so emotional and it's so intense to talk about, but I'm also so filled with like gratitude. Like now here I am almost two years out of it. Like that was an incredibly loving time in our life. As odd as that sounds, like we were heartbroken, but we were carried through the whole thing by everyone, not just our family our town, our community, our strangers we don't even know. People were praying for us. People are still praying for us. Like my mom, she's the hairdresser. She cuts nuns' hairs. I think every nun in America was like, (laughs) you know, like still have us on their prayer list, you know? And it really was such an incredible healing after that experience because we allowed ourselves to be loved, supported, taken care of, and Carmela was the star of our lives at that point. Like our little North star that kept us together. You know, like I just can't imagine. I ache so deeply for families that go through that without having a little Carmela. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I think we would have fallen apart, you know, obviously, because we're human and I can't believe I didn't get loaded. I'm not going to lie. You know, so many people thought I would lose my sobriety. And I also I don't think one person would have judged me. If I decided to kind of shut it off, you know, or like check out. But I just was like, I don't know. Again, I think this really has to do with so much of my work. All of a sudden I had so many tools, you know, that I was like, oh, wow. The deeper I feel this, the quicker it'll pass. You know, this is like, I can't escape this feeling or this. Experience. I can't delete it. I have to feel it. I have to go through it. And then I started to understand grief in a new way. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, grief is like a house, it's not an experience. Like, It doesn't come and go. You just go from like different rooms. There's like the two weeks after Rosie died, we were in a room. And then like, I kind of woke up and felt different. And I was in a new room and I was like, Hey, let's go to Rockefeller and see the Christmas tree. And that was a new room at the grief house. This is how I described it to people. Like I felt like it was so wild how it blew me over. Like, and how truthfully I'll never be the same. Like I will never be the same person. Paul will never be the same person. Even Carmela, who now is four and a half, she talks about death beautifully. And again, I don't wish this experience on literally anyone, but we just like felt it so deeply that we leaned into it so deeply that we learned from it, if that makes sense. Like so many people were just taught to be so afraid of death. And we have such weird language around it. And everyone looked at me like I was the Grim Reaper. I'm not even going to lie. I'd walk in the room and people just didn't know what. People would freeze because you have people who die, like your parents or like some tragic, you know, accident. But like babies are just, that is just like, that is the worst version. And some people like can't even look you in the eye.
0: I can't. You know, there's nothing to say.
1: Right? And really. But that's okay. I think nothing to say is better than sometimes saying other things. I'm not going to lie. Like the people that said, I don't know what to say and I love you. And "That's the worst thing I ever heard of or whatever. What can I do? You know, like I learned so much. I feel like I could write a whole book about grief and what to say and what not to say. You know, I all of a sudden was like trying to comfort everyone else because everyone was looking at me like again, like the Grim Reaper. It was an odd couple months where I just sort of laid low because I was like, here I am, I'm walking in the room and I am bringing the worst, I don't want to say vibe, but like the grief just goes with you. So I was the grief house, right? Mm -hmm. To like walk in the room and I would just try to kind of level the feelings. It would just be so intense, you know? So we really just were forced to bond and stay home. And again, it was a pandemic and I don't even know what happened. You know, I know so many people have terrible experiences in 2020, but like my life was so blown open and so crushed and so fragmented and so broken. And then we moved to LA and I honestly, I almost want to say this is another episode of your show because the healing from this is its own amazing and fascinating, I think, experience because the day we landed in LA, January 1st of 2021, we moved to seek refuge from the pain from the winter. I mean, if you imagine just like this little cocoon of ours, like in New Jersey, in this house with our families and we love our families, we love being near them, but we just need the sunshine. I need the best holistic doctors there are. I needed my OBGYN, Dr. Mary Kerr, who was a brilliant human I knew would help me get to the bottom of it. I woke up in a brand new room in the grief house at the end of December and said, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Everyone said that nothing was abnormal. We tested Rosie per autopsy, my blood work, Paul's blood work, my placenta, everything came back normal. And I said, I don't believe any of this and I'm going to start an investigation and it's going to help me heal. And so we moved to LA and I begin my own very, Secret little Aaron investigation. <laughs> investigation <laughs> yeah. onto what happened.
0: Okay. Again, just how powerful and courageous you are for having shared that. And I'm so sorry that you and paul and carmella experienced that and there aren't words to say but i do have this idea which is that after you have this baby maybe we'll come back and do another double episode and have a longer chat about grief and healing from it at that time let's take a break and find out what aaron brockovich came up with when we come back (laughs) Welcome back to the informed pregnancy podcast. We are talking to Christina Perry. Okay. So Aaron Barakovich, you kind of had signs that something was up already. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You sound hard on yourself about that because I think, I don't know how many people do, you know, maybe they don't tell you that who have a thyroid. That's a little hyper or a little hypo and don't really give it too much thought you know other than maybe i need to get more sunlight more vitamin d who knows and a miscarriage in the first trimester awful to go through but again you're part of a very large group of people who have that i was a medic in new york city for a while i've been working in healthcare for a long time i don't know that i'd put those together you know in prospect, in retrospect it's a lot easier to see
1: yes well i appreciate you saying that honestly i am hard on myself Because I wish more than anything I caught maybe a more obvious clue. So I guess I'm saying health issues started to occur that I didn't have before. And yes, honestly, they're all pretty impossible to put together and solve until we solved it. And I went, oh, gosh, you know, they were there. So I do want to say you're right. I am being hard on myself. I don't think it was possible in the time and space that I was in to have noticed these things. And I truly really only see most of them now in hindsight. So I just being a perfectionist and like, you know, someone who somewhat prides myself on health and like being in the know of things, like, I just kind of wish I noticed things just selfishly because of what we went through. I wish I could have like you know, I feel like any mom would think this, like, I wish I could have saved my family from going through what we went through by noticing something, but really truthfully, you are correct. I don't think that they all line up together and make sense until you start dissecting things and doing all the testing that I then started to do. So I'll go into what happened. So we moved back to LA on January 1st, 2021. And I truly was in a place where I was like, okay, Now I'm ready to heal. And I will say, I have to credit my sobriety in the sense that I've always sort of been into the solution. I've learned that early on in AA that like, you just have to go into the fire, into the flame And ask the questions, be your own advocate. All those things were kind of instilled in me as like an Italian girl from Philly. You know, I'm also very tough and like, I don't take no for an answer. And it's almost like every quality, I'm a Leo. I'm like, you know, every quality I ever had in my personality and in my spirit came together to help me get through this. And truthfully, I also asked an enormous amount of help. So I think that's a big theme here is that I constantly asked questions and asked for help. And I really put together a team of people, mostly women around me to help me figure it out, but also get through it. So in so many ways, and I'm sure, you know, with like a wife who is a therapist, like there were so many layers to this where I couldn't necessarily skip over anything. So if I was going to investigate medically what was going on with me, I definitely needed to do the emotional work too, because All of it felt quite heavy. And when I got to LA, I immediately felt, truthfully, the sunshine helped. Like, I just felt better. I was breathing easier physically. I mean, whether I knew it or not, uh, literally, I was breathing easier. It was just like a new chapter. And I was like, okay, obviously, I can't delete what just happened. I'm going to move it forward. It's been eight weeks since it happened. But I'm going to sit outside in the sun with Carmela, with Paul, we have a pool here. We bought a house in the middle of the pandemic without knowing at all that it would be our house that we would move to. And we furnished it thinking we would put it up for Airbnb and like how magical that this became like our refuge. And it was just like a furnished house waiting for us. Like it felt very meant to be. So we came here, we brought Meredith, our nanny, our super nanny, my Mary Poppins, and we bring her. And the very first thing I did was EMDR because I thought to myself, well, first of all, I almost got tricked into it. My therapist came over. Her name is Bernie, and she's been my therapist at this point for about 10 years. Very sweet, very warm, very connected, amazing human being, knows me in my core. She comes over and she says, why doesn't Meredith take Carmela for a walk? So we have the house to ourselves. And this is still in a huge COVID spike in LA. If you remember January of 2021, like we actually never even like went in the airport. We had like a car pick us up like at the plane because we traveled in the middle of like a massive spike. So we weren't seeing people when we got here. So Bernie came over. I think she had either just had COVID or maybe just been vaccinated. I think the vaccination had just come out or something, but Anywho, she comes over and she sits on my floor in my bedroom. And she tricked me in the sense that I was not ready to do EMDR. It had only been eight weeks since this had happened. And I thought we were just going to like hold each other. I could cry and like, it would just be a normal therapy session. And what happened, I really just want to point out, I think really helped me with the next six to nine months of my life, which was I went straight into what happened. I remember very vividly what I love about EMDR is like, how visceral, like I could feel the fabric. I could smell the hospital room. I was sitting outside the door. And interestingly enough, my therapist, Bernie was in my like sort of memory. And I was like, I need you to help me go in the room. I couldn't go in the room. I was outside of a door. I thought this was profound. And she was there. And I was even shocked when I saw her in my own like with my eyes closed and I'm like, you're here. I'm like, this is crazy. You know, she had never been in any of my other flashbacks or I don't know what you actually call those. But I said, I I think I need your help to open the door. I think I need, I'm shocked because this is what she kept saying to me. You're shocked. And I'm like, I'm not shocked. I like remember every moment. She's like, no, you're in shock. And so we went into the room. It was me. It was Paul. It was Rosie. I was holding her. I mean, I walked through the whole thing, with the vibrating things in my hands. And I cried and I screamed. I mean, I literally, I've never done that in my life. She just said, scream, just scream because I was like, so I guess I was holding it all together. Do you know? And I'm so glad Carmel went on a walk because I'm sure I would have terrified her from like the bedroom screaming. But I, again, I think it's really important work. And I think that was like the beginning of me being okay. and, moved that out of the way to like get to the solution. So I was like, really, really felt the pain, really let myself remember, really let myself go back to that moment. I said, I absolutely hated when, you know, I'm staring at the ceiling and she's looking for the heartbeat, walked through all that all over again with the support of my therapist and doing all the things she said. And I truly felt a healing occur. And then from the EMDR and the therapy, I added in work with a doula. I had a postpartum doula come who was recommended. She was going to help me with my postpartum, with my pelvic floor, with my yoga, like things to actually get my body better. So now I'm working on the physical, right? The emotional, mental, the physical, I'm starting to like align this, like I said, like web of really, really gentle, wonderful women. But the big one for me was going to see my OBGYN, Dr. Mary Kerr, Who was my OB for 10 years in LA when I was living here? So I knew how brilliant she was, but she's also very sweet and gentle with me. And I knew she would take the time because this is also, I wanna say, really important to advocate for yourself in the medical world. You know, a lot of times people don't sit there and go through line by line with you, you know, unless you ask. And I was just really, at this point, I had nothing left to lose. I was in such a state of like, You know, I'm just going to ask all the questions. I just want to know all the answers. And I'm not afraid because I've already been heartbroken more than any human in my mind could be heartbroken. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I just want to now understand. So what's crazy is I thought I would get some answers and I thought I would maybe find comfort in some of those answers. I knew it would never change the past. But what I ultimately did find was a huge life-changing moment for me in three different parts. One is right before we moved to LA, my best friend came over to our house in New Jersey and said, I think you should test your house for mold. I was like, what? She had just discovered she had mold poisoning. It was super random. And she was like, just rule it out. Just do the test like on your vents, do the blood test that goes with it. And then you can at least know it's not that. And I was like, okay, sure, fine. That was the last thing I thought, you know, that would be a thing. But I did it because she's my friend. So this is where all this intervention, like started to happen where I was just sort of listening to everyone and saying, okay, like I was in such a surrendered place. So I test the house for mold. I test my blood for mold. We move to LA. I do all these things. I'm meeting with these people. I meet with Dr. Mary Kerr and I bring her a stack of paper with all of my history for the past two years. I had Carmela in New York. So I had all Carmela's stuff, my pregnancy with Carmela, then the miscarriage, then the cyst on my ovary, then the whole pregnancy with Rosie, and then the death and the autopsy and everything. And Dr. Mary Kerr, being the angel that she is, cleared her whole day. I think she sat with me for two hours. We sat in her office, we cried together. I mean, her and I go way back also. I know her husband well. And so it really was like a beautiful sort of healing. Like I just kept like, trying to put the pieces together by doing all the healing things. And this, I knew was going to be a healing piece for me because she sees me, she hears me and she'd explain it to me. And she's like, brilliant. So sat with her, we go through everything. And she says something that I'll never forget. It was like a scene of a movie where like everything goes like quiet and and like, you just kind of hear like a train coming or something. And I kept echoing over and over and over in my head, what she just said, you know, Christina, I have a hunch And they get mad at me when I do this and I'll go back and dissect this with you. But she says, they get mad at me when I do this, but I'm going to test you for a blood clot. And I was like, okay. And then in my mind, I'm going, wait, who's they, what is this hunch? And then I'm thinking, well, surely it can't be this. I'm sure it's really rare. Also, I didn't have any signs of a blood clot. I figured when you have a blood clot, your leg swells up, your arm swells up. These are things I understand of blood clots and also there was no blood clot in my placenta, which I seem to remember my OB checking. So I'm just like, okay, but I we move on. I go home. I want to say a week later, I get two calls that changed my life forever. One is I get a call from the mold company that says that there is 37 types of bacteria, mycotoxins, and endotoxins that are created by mold. Black mold specifically, but also about 11 other types of mold because apparently there are endless types. All of it is in a chart and explained and emailed to me. And I'm looking at all these like sort of lines that you can either be yellow, orange, or red, right? Where this is my blood. They tested the house and the blood. And they both line up together that my house is filled with mold, but my blood is filled with mold. And it's in the red on almost every single line
0: all the same strains
1: yes the mycotoxins specifically and the black mold and aspergillus penicillin they're all labeled there's so many different types and my blood is off the charts so in that moment I then realize that this is a massive piece of the puzzle but I'm also Blindsided. Like, I don't even know what this means. I've never heard of this my whole life. Like, the house was tested for mold before we bought it. Like, this is a common thing I didn't think could ever get sort of overlooked or whatever. So, this is the beginning of a journey mold related. I'll leave that there. And then I literally get a call from Dr. Mary Kerr the same week that says I tested positive for antiphospholipid syndrome, which is the blood clotting disease, one of seven that she believes was the cause of death for Rosie and the baby at 11 weeks. Because she said to me, after there's a heartbeat, there's a reason. She said, if it's before, I'm referring to the miscarriage. If you miscarry before you hear a heartbeat or see a heartbeat, a lot of times it can be completely random abnormality, just didn't become viable, didn't correctly develop, whatever. After you hear a heartbeat or see a heartbeat, there really most of the time is something you can discover, like a reason. So I didn't know that. And she's then telling me on the phone that it's because I had a blood clot. And then I say, well, what does that mean? And she says, oh, don't worry, my darling. That means if you were pregnant again, we would you know, put you on blood thinner and that you would be fine and your baby could be fine. And so I hang up with her and completely break down. I remember at the realization of a couple of things. One, oh my gosh, I found it. Right? Like, what relief, like what relief. I found the reason why Rosie died, the baby died. I trust Dr. Mary Curran. You know, it was an assumption for her because obviously we can't go back in time and tell, but she said, I have the, the antibodies. That means I had a blood clot. That's most likely the reason. And I have this information that I had been searching for and hoping for. And then at the same exact time, in the same breath, I am livid that it was avoidable in the sense of how did we not catch that? Like all of a sudden, a million questions are running through my head, right? How did we not catch that? How many women have this? It must be rare. The only thing I could wrap my head around was this must be so rare and I must be just incredibly unlucky or just this random occurrence, but I don't think I am. Like I had a gut feeling that this was bigger than I could possibly understand and that I should probably stop there and just be glad I figured it out but I'm too me to do that. I am too much of a question asker, a chase the truth, bold, brave, outspoken person that all of a sudden I felt like Aaron Brockovich and I went, wait a second, who are the they? You know what I mean? Now I feel like I'm in a mystery movie and now I have to solve how did this go overlooked without also going backwards and blaming anyone? Because I want to be really clear that everyone was following protocol. So I also didn't feel malpractice. I just want to say, I think people get really nervous when like people start investigating things or ruffling, you know, up the past. And I want to say when we had the five best doctors in New York city, like in my hospital room, all confirming the same thing over and over again, that I was okay. And that they would do this. And then I was listening to them and they were all consulting with each other and they all were asking me and I was choosing the same thing. Like nothing Feels like it was wrong. And I almost feel like we'd all make the same decisions again based on the information we had at the time. I just wanted to know what this all really meant and what I could do about it. And if there was anything to do for other women, like I had that intuition. So I immediately start to now put another story together. So I go, well, okay, what's this mold piece? So I start doing research, talking to a ton of mold specialists, reading a bunch of things on mold. I will just say this the things that started to happen to me only happened to me after I moved into that house. I want to be very clear that apparently out of those seven blood clotting diseases or syndromes that you can have and develop, you can also be born with them. You know, you don't have to get them because of something. You can just be born genetically with the disposition. It can run in your family. You can have blood clots, whatever. I just don't think that's my story. I think because Carmela was healthy and I was living in LA and then living in New York and I didn't have any of the other things going on. I believe I developed the blood clotting condition from the mold. Again, I'm not a doctor. This is just my theory, my intuition, because I also then realized that I had Sjogren's syndrome, which came up later six different types of viruses in my body that I was like combating against, which means my toxic bucket seemed to have overflowed. I was pregnant two times in that house, which means my immune system was compromised and I was unable to fight mold. Like normal people who are healthy actually make antibodies to fight against toxins. So I can go into that for hours. I will not. I'll just say that it was an important piece of the puzzle for me personally, because I think it explains how I got here from being very healthy to not being healthy. Then, this is still January of 2021, I very quietly hit up my entertainment lawyer, who's been my lawyer for 12 years, who is lovely, and his wife is an activist, and you know, I know he's an entertainment lawyer, but I figured he had medical people in his office, and I said, hey you know, this is information I just got just between us. Would you please do some research for me and ask your healthcare lawyers in your firm, if they can do some research for me, I just want to know how rare this blood clotting condition or blood clotting conditions in general, how rare it is, how common and how much it's detected in pregnancy and whatever. I just had a couple questions. And so This is really where my Aaron Brockovich kicks in because he calls me about two weeks later and he's in tears. And he says, which again, I kind of felt intuitively. He said, I don't know how to tell you this, but just in New York state alone, which is where he is. He said, the research came back. My team came back to me and discovered that 55% of multiple miscarriages are due to one of the seven blood clotting diseases. And honestly, I knew it in my gut but I was pretty blown away. And also I was angry and activated and grateful almost that this information came to me because in that moment I realized that I was going to make a massive change. I would spend the rest of my life doing it no matter how long it takes in honor of Rosie, because she only got to live 34 weeks. And someone said to me in my healing journey, what if Rosie was only supposed to live 34 weeks? Like what if that wasn't a mistake in her destiny. What if she was supposed to live that long? She was supposed to get you, Paul and Carmella out of a house that was poisoning all three of you. She was supposed to teach you just something that's being overlooked in women's health, right? It's not intentional. Nobody's trying to miss this. I've done so much research now and talked to so many doctors and so many people. And like, there's not been one human being that's like, no, I don't want to save babies. Like everybody wants for this to not be overlooked anymore. But like, I have to say, you know, it's a huge piece of my healing with Rosie because I just believe that this is what her little life can do, you know, like sometimes I don't like that narrative and I just wish she was here. You know what I mean? I don't want to say that I think it was meant to be that she's not here. I just think that because of what happened, I almost feel like most women don't get to then turn their biggest tragedy into something so healing, so important and so life-changing for other families and other babies that I feel like I'm responsible, like I can do it. I was walking on the treadmill, I'm not even kidding. And I was crying and I was also like, I can do this. Like I'm strong enough to do this, to sit in a room and present it in front of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Like I wore a little power suit, you know, covered my tattoos and I presented a massive presentation to them of a year worth of research. I was like, this is all, I'm a singer. Like I'm not a doctor, I'm not gonna pretend to be a doctor. I didn't go on TV right away. I spent an entire year working to prove my point, you know, in so many ways, medically. I mean, emotionally, duh, I got that. I got the story. All I have to do is start singing and I can make anyone cry, you know? And it's like, I have bring the emotional part. I met with the doctors to bring the medical part. I met with my lawyers to bring the financial part. I met with the women who used to work in hospitals who knew about the test because all of a sudden I'm saying, well, why aren't we tested for this? Well, what is the test Require Oh, one CC of blood. Okay. Uh, and what is it test for? All of them in one. So it's just one blood clotting test that someone needs to do. It's $42. If you don't have insurance, it's free. If you have insurance, if you do it in the first trimester prenatal screening, it is one of 13 tests that already happen. It's absolutely no extra effort even, you know, for anyone. And every door I looked behind First of all, every single person I met with said yes, and instantly became an ally, right? I didn't have to like convince anyone. It sounds almost ridiculous that this has been overlooked where a woman has blood clotting antibodies for whatever reason, right? Whether it's their history, their health, their environment, their whatever it is, but they're not tested. And I forgot to mention the only time they're tested is after two or three losses, which is why I go back to what Dr. Mary Kerr said. And I'll never forget when she said, they get mad at me when I do this, because I only had two. But from listening to my very long episode with you, you can see just those two miscarriages changed my life forever. Right? So the depth of how important it would be to be able to stop families from having to go through what I went through, what Carmelo went through, what Paul went through, what our families went through, what my body went through. Right. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not even trying to like do something that seems luxurious or extra. It's like, no, it feels pretty basic. Like, Hey, what if we just tested women for this in the first trimester? Because the solution is so simple. It's just to take blood thinner. So This is what's really cool about doing your show before birth and after birth, because I really hope this baby makes it in the next eight days when I deliver. And if and when, you know, I'm knocking on wood. If she does make it here, the true difference, the really only difference medically, aside from like lymphatic massages and sitting in a sauna and detoxing from mold the best I could with diet and exercise and acupuncture and things like that, and vitamins. You know, the only real difference that I've done now with this pregnancy is I've taken blood thinner every day. I took Lovenox shots every single day until 36 weeks and I've switched to heparin and I take that twice a day. And so far this baby's alive. I'm oddly grateful for this experience because I cherish literally everything so much more. I also feel like it's important that this happened and I'm Glad I could be of service. I had the time, the money to do it. I had the resources to do it. I reached out. You know, everyone showed up for me. Everyone met with me. Everybody gave me a chance. Everybody listened to me. I spoke as well as I could on the topic. And then I passed the ball, you know, and said, like, you know, okay, ACOG, it's up to you now. You know, that's their job. They make the protocols for all women's health in the US. And so that's sort of the story. I feel like I'm also it a little bit of a standstill with them where it's taking a while so I'm now speaking out about it this is also my part so I was quiet I did things in their sort of way and you know hoped it would be quicker it's taking a while so I'm also using word of mouth which is what women just do so great and I speak to women mothers grandmothers girls girls that want to be pregnant girls that know people who are pregnant families men dads Paul is an ally he tells everyone he knows we just tell everyone, hey, if you've had loss or even if you haven't, there's no harm in asking your doctor for this blood test and just knowing. And then maybe the choice is yours if you want to take blood thinner, since there's no side effects and there's no harm in taking it. When you want to know if you have a antibodies that could make a blood clot, could not make a blood clot, maybe you're totally fine. Maybe you're on the scale on the low end, maybe you're on the high end. To put the choice into the woman's hands is like my dream. And then to save millions and millions of babies along the way. That was a really long answer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a couple of points here. Back when you were pregnant with Rosie and doing those non-stress tests every day, the clot is not really something that tests can pick up, right? right? So with the information that you had, everyone was following protocol, but it was the information that you didn't have that would have almost definitely changed your decision. To not leave Rosie inside longer to get right. Rosie out earlier. And so, this is literally, you know, a life and death piece of information in your case. And again, to happen to someone who wasn't going to just sit back and be broken entirely mm-hmm. by it, but on the other hand, to be strengthened by it and to go out and empower other people with it. It's just you, it's the you I've known for less than a week. and the you i'm just so inspired by in a million different ways i mean i hope that everyone listening will also go out then and you know share this episode my commitment to you is also i'm gonna get an expert on and do an episode very soon about blood clotting disorders and what they are what the variations mean how they're tested yeah. Who gets tested, who can get tested, even if it's not been recommended for them, mm-hmm. and um, what treatments look like. And, you know, I want to help also, you know, everybody's your ally because you're such a magnet. Oh, thank you. And I want to make your experience and Rosie's life, you know, as meaningful as possible and helpful as possible to other people. Uh, right now, though, you're pregnant and beyond 34 weeks. Yep and the protocols with the clotting are to get induced to take blood thinners and switch blood thinners to ones that don't stay in your system as long and then get induced so that's coming up very soon just a week
1: Mm -hmm. i know i know i'm terrified you know sometimes i like make it look so easy to be i don't know not anxious or to be brave because i speak about like i'm always talking about it which i think also I learned in therapy to make the implicit explicit. And like, that is how I get through it. But the truth is like, Some days I feel completely impossible. Some days Paul breaks down and cries hysterically if we're not sure she's moving. And then I have like apple juice and then it takes her a minute. You know, she's probably sleeping. She's probably like, why are you you bothering me? You know, I'm trying to give this baby in my uterus, but obviously I say belly all the time to Carmela. I'm trying to give her her own story. You know what I mean? I really don't want to put Rosie's story on her. But to be pregnant after loss is probably the hardest thing I've ever been through. Uh, You know, obviously after losing Rosie, but the amazing things that women go through and obviously partners, you know, Paul's right there with me, but like the traumas in my body, you know, and when we passed the 34 week mark, I mean, I woke up the anniversary of the gestation of the day that Rosie died in my body in this new pregnancy. I woke up crying before I like woke up, like my body remembered before I did, you know, my brain. And I cried that whole day and I made room for it. And I just leaned on everyone I know. Again, I just never want to sound like I'm doing this alone. I'm asking everybody I know. I have my best friends. I have my mom friends. I have my internet friends. that don't even know (laughs) like (laughs) thousands of women who reach out to me. I'm not even kidding. And, And I do write them back and I really hope they feel appreciated because I do appreciate them so much. And, you know, I have this community and I'm grateful for it. I'm so deeply grateful for it because all I have to do is say one thing and I just get all these messages that say me too, me too, me too, me too. So I'm still in this terrible club, but I really do appreciate the ability to turn something tragic into something beautiful. And that's it. Cause I definitely don't wish I went through this. I, you know, I'm so sad about it. I'll be sad about it for the rest of my life, you know, but I'm also so joyful at the same time to give Carmela a sibling. I keep joking with Paul that I'm just going to hand the baby to (laughs) Carmela. I'm done. I tried. I mean, for three years, I've been trying to give her sibling, and she's such an incredible human, and I just want to see her have that and, like, have her little friend. And and Meredith, I want to just bring her back in the story. She's flying here in three days. I'm flying her here just to hopefully go through this experience with us and hold a little baby who's alive and heal. Because if you think about it, we really are coming around and the joy this little baby might bring us, she won't even ever get to know, like how healing it could be in a week or so. You know, I'm still so nervous, but I dream of the moment that we're all holding her and healing, you know, and honoring, thinking of Rosie, obviously she's, oh my gosh, she's in our conversations all the time. We talk about her all the time. Carmela is so protective. And when people say to her, oh, you're going to be a big sister. And Carmel immediately goes, I already am a big sister. My well, sister's in my heart. Like she's oh. a stranger on the street as that fast. She's like almost offended people don't know. Wow. So well, she's a special little girl and I'm just hopeful that it all goes well. And I guess we're going to have to do the next episode to find out.
0: Yeah, the uh, special little apple doesn't fall from the special little tree.
1: Oh. thank you
0: and i'm sure the way you even just talk about him paul is also a special little tree i just don't know him personally yet but it's coming i can't again thank you enough you're so expressive and you do make it look easy like i don't see the fear in you Mm -hmm. but i know it's in there and i'm just hoping that the next few days you know you get through them in as calm and peaceful way as possible and then have an amazing beginning of the next chapter
1: yay thank you
0: mm, thank you uh we agreed that the easiest way to find you online is christina perry on instagram and click on the little link tree like thing and we have access to your whole world
1: my whole world yep <laughs> records and regular records and i don't know whatever i've been up to
0: yeah, and whatever you're going to be up to. And then for us, we're easy to find too. We're at Dr. Berlin on Instagram D O C T O R B E R L I N.